Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 80, The Unbelievable Truth. In this episode, I'm going to uh, play and comment on a few clips from my recent appearance on the Unbelievable Radio program from March 3rd, in which I defended an annihilationist understanding of hell. And I'm going to respond to some feedback that Justin Brierley and I received after the episode was published. But there are just a few things that I want to talk about before we get started. The first thing is, a friend and listener uh, recently suggested that I... Uh, set up to accept donations of some sort, uh, you know, on, on the ba- on the grounds that uh, many of you have been edified by the show. Uh, I've considered doing that. I, I didn't want to look as though, I didn't want to appear as though I was trying to make money off of this or uh, that I was going to try and pester people for money. I, I, you know, I've been able to afford to um, keep the show running on my own and I anticipate being able to do so in the future. However, um, there are some things that it would make easier. For one thing, I'm considering moving to uh, a hosting service different from the way that I'm hosting this show right now. Right now, I'm using Blogspot, which is free, to do a blog, which I never post on anymore. (laughs) Uh, And then I'm using Podbean, which has a number of issues, not the least of which is that it doesn't seem to have the best of uptime. I'm I'm considering switching from those to something like a standard web hosting service, and WordPress uh, being installed on that uh, server. So I'm thinking of moving to something like iPower or PowWeb or Globat or GoDaddy. You know, there are a number of uh, web hosting services that I might consider switching to. Well, anyway, you know, those aren't free. Um, they're probably about what I'm paying now yearly for Podbean. Um, but still, it would make it would make it easier to transition to that, I think, to, to pay for that yearly if, if I did get a few donations here and there. So I'm considering taking my friend up on his suggestion. Um, I don't want to file as a 501c3 or anything like that, and I want to avoid tax implications. And so if anything, I would just accept personal gifts, kind of like Dee Dee Warren does on her show. But I haven't yet figured out how I want to do that. Um, if it's something that you're interested in donating to, just go ahead and shoot me an email at theapologetics at hotmail.com and, um, you know, we can talk about how to do that. Um, and in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for how to set up this kind of a, uh, you know, method for receiving donations for the show, e- email me that. Um, like I said, I want to avoid tax implications, uh, uh, but I also want to keep the... I want to keep the funds separate from my personal banking account because I don't want to give the impression that I'm spending the money on myself. So anyway, email me if you have any suggestions or if you want to make a donation. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to mention, speaking of D.D. Warren, uh, I finally <laughs> uh, finished my um, the, the most recent installment of the Kicking Some Left Behind series that I'd been promising her for some time. I, I thought it went very well. Uh, the next installment is something that we might do together, uh, D.D. and I together. I don't know when that'll be. Uh, but if you want to listen to the most recent installment of Kicking Some Left Behind, just go to preteristpodcast.com and uh, you know either subscribe to her podcast or download the episode uh, and let me know what you think. Uh, another thing that I wanted to mention was that a few episodes back, I had friends and listeners Nathan Schumacher and Cowboy Bob Sorensen on the show to discuss the age of the earth. And in response to that, a listener named James 
uh, commented on episode 75 at my podcast with a challenge to young earth creationism based on metamorphic and igneous rock. Uh, well, Nathan Schumacher spent uh, a considerable amount of time coming up with a very thorough and detailed response to that that has made both him and me even more uh, encouraged and, and strengthened in our convictions as young earth creationists. Uh, I've created that. Uh, I've created a PDF out of that, and um, you can find a link to it if you go to episode 75 and look in the comments. Uh, at Podbean, or you can just go to the The Apologetics Facebook page and, and find the recent um, post that I made there. Um, you'll find a link and you can download the PDF and just be prepared for a long read. I think it's something like 19 pages. <laughs> uh, like I said, it's very detailed and thorough. Uh, and speaking of Facebook, by the way, I've recently discovered that I could give my Facebook page a username, making the URL easier to get to. So if you want to find the Facebook page for The Apologetics and, and haven't before, it's super easy. Just go to facebook.com slash theapologetics. And it should take you right there. The last thing that I wanted to mention was that having done the debate with Hiram Diaz on my show uh, and having done the debate on Unbelievable with Steve Jeffrey, um, I wanted to just sort of sit back and relax and see if any invitations for future debates came my way. I, I, I'm not all about annihilationism. Uh, I know that I've had several episodes uh, as, as I, you know... Uh, as I shared with you, my transition from the traditional view to annihilationism. And I know that I'm doing this episode now, but moving forward, it's not going to be an emphasis of the show. Nevertheless, uh, I'd like to do uh, future debates in bigger venues or with uh, bigger opponents, not because I want any attention, but because I'd like this view to get out there and more seriously considered by evangelicals. But like I said, I, didn't want to, I don't want to be all about annihilationism, and so I figured I'd just sort of sit back and relax and see if any invitations came my way. Um, but I've got one friend and listener <laughs> who, has, uh, been, um, who has been emailing some big names to see if they might be interested in debating me in the future. Uh, he's emailed people like Michael Horton from the White Horse Inn, Adrian Warnock, Alistair Begg, Mark Driscoll, Matt Slick, Kevin DeYoung, and Sam Storms, and Randy Alcorn. He sent them all emails seeing if they'd be interested in debating this topic with me. Um, I don't know what's going to come from that. Uh, <laughs> I'm certainly, I'd be excited to debate any of those names. Um, I, I know that one of them, I think Adrian Warnock, has maybe expressed a little bit of an interest in debating the, the topic. I don't know. We'll see what comes of it. But I just wanted to let you know that um, if, if you've enjoyed the debate but want to see the topic debated with a uh, perhaps a more notable or uh, more... Um, I don't know, capable name. Uh, if that's something that you've been hoping for, well, you know, maybe something will come from that. I'm not going to uh, go out of my way to try to set something up, but other listeners have been doing just that. And I want to thank you, uh, Nick, for doing that for me. Um, and we'll just have to see what comes from it. I'll keep everybody updated. Um, with that, I guess I don't have anything else that I want to say. I'll go ahead and play today's promo for R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind podcast. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. In our Quorum Deo thought for today, let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. 
And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in Him. God provides what you need. As I've mentioned in the past, R.C. Sproul has been one of my favorite theologians. Uh, he, his work is um, part of what convinces me to this day of a reformed view of soteriology. Um, he was also instrumental in my conversion, if you will, to uh, preterism. Um, I've enjoyed his book, uh, The Last Days According to Jesus, and some of the other work that he's done. I would definitely recommend that you check out Ligonier Ministries. There's a, uh, a lot of teaching available um, from from his ministry. If, you, uh, if you're new to Ligonier Ministries, you, there's even right now a book offer um, for free. If you go to Ligonier.org and click on uh, New to Ligonier, Learn More, which is on the right side of the page, it'll take you to a page where you can sign up to get a copy of R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God, um, which I haven't read, uh, unfortunately, but maybe I'll do that uh, if it's free. <laughs> uh, but The Holiness of God is famous, from what I understand, uh, and you can get your free copy by going to Ligonier.org right now. You can also subscribe for free to the Renewing Your Mind podcast. If you go to Ligonier.org and uh, mouse over the word ministries and then click on Renewing Your Mind radio, you'll be able to to uh, listen to episodes right there on the website, or you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast for free. Um, it's a great ministry, great resources available. Um, so check them out at www.ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org. And uh, enjoy what you find there. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's episode. In the March 3rd episode of the Unbelievable Radio Program with Justin Brierley, I debated Steve Jeffrey on the nature of eternal punishment. The scriptures are so clear on the subject that I don't think annihilationism is an unbelievable truth at all. I think it's quite obvious, in fact. And if you thought annihilationism came out on top in that episode, well, it's not my doing. It's, it's God's. As the title track you just heard put it, the spirit trumps the vessel absolute. And being the weak vessel that I am, that was certainly the case on Unbelievable. Now, I'm not going to reproduce that whole discussion here. You can listen to that episode of Unbelievable by going to www.premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable and by clicking on the link for the March 3rd episode or by subscribing to the podcast whose link you can find there. And, uh, you know, I've also included links in the show notes. But I do want to comment on a few clips from the discussion and I've tried to include enough of the context without making this episode obtrusively long. I've got three clips I want to comment on uh, and here's the first. I, I do want to echo... Uh, what Steve has said about the tone of this conversation. It is a horrible topic. It is a horrifying thing to think about. But I'd, I'd like to add, uh, if I might, that, that I approach this discussion not just horrified by what awaits the unsaved, but also horrified by the way this topic divides believers in the here and now. I mean, Justin, you know from your January 14th episode that annihilationists like me are called liberals who deny a literal, hair, uh, a literal hell. Um, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and so it's really hurt me to hear what's been said about me by apologists and theologians that I really highly respect and appreciate, uh, even friends with whom I partnered in ministry. And, of course, ministry doors close to someone who abandons the traditional view of hell in favor of mine. 
Um, you know, there, there's no question that there are certain essentials over which uh, dividing is perfectly appropriate and necessary, but I just don't think this is one of them. Um, I don't deny the revealed nature of God or Christ. It, it isn't explicitly condemned by the office of Scripture like a denial of the resurrection of our bodies. It doesn't turn salvation of grace, uh, salvation by grace through faith alone into a works-based system. Um, and, and so I, I guess I just, again, I want to echo everything mm. Steve said, and I uh, definitely think that this is a topic that we should be discussing in evangelism. But I'd like to see the uh, I'd like to see us as believers come together and talk about this issue respectfully, uh, be open to one another's views, and, and that's part of the reason yeah. I'm here today. You, you don't see this then in that sense as a sort of core doctrine that uh, defines evangelicalism. Um, in a sense, people can respectfully disagree on the nature of hell, and uh, and still call themselves, you know evangelical bible believing christians um i, I don't know steve where, what do yeah. you feel on that um chris and i were talking um before we came on air and um one of the things that chris said to me um, paraphrasing what he said is um do you think i'm a heretic um is, is my view heresy and um when, whenever anybody asks me that question i want to know why they're asking it um do, do they want to, to know um uh I, I don't want to have anything to do with the Bible's teaching. I just like the sound of this. Am I allowed to believe that? The answer is no. You must believe what the Bible says. If, however, you have done what Chris has done and studied the scriptures and been at where Chris is at the moment, been brought to this conviction um, in good conscience and prayerfully, I'm not ready to condemn you as a heretic. As it stands, like Chris knows that he and I disagree, and that's fine. And sometimes this tag, you're a heretic, is used as an excuse, we must not talk to each other anymore. Mm. I don't have to have a conversation mm. with this guy. That's not right. Um, that said, um, I think what makes an issue a serious issue is sometimes what it leads to. And uh, historically, um, a denial of the doctrine of an everlasting conscious punishment in hell has led quite a lot of theologians to deny other things which are more central to Christian faith. Now, I appreciated Steve's comments, his distinction between people who adopt annihilationism uh, because that's what they want to believe, in contrast with people like me who have become convinced by exegesis of the scripture um, to believe annihilationism. And I appreciated his not considering it on those grounds, heresy. Um, but I was, I am a little skeptical of this claim that it has led theologians to worse error. Um, I emailed Steve. I, I asked him for examples of annihilationism historically leading to worse error. He responded not with specific people who adopted my view of hell and then further worse error, but rather with things like, quote, undercutting the seriousness of sin, tinkering with the objective penal character of the atonement, a man-centered view of the universe connected with a sentimental assumption that God just couldn't do anything this nasty, and some kind of further change in the doctrine of hell itself, whereby some idea of probation or a second chance is, uh, second chance is introduced, unquote. Now, it seems to me that contrary to what Steve said in this clip, these are not things which result from annihilationism, but are things which might result in annihilationism. Uh, if a traditionalist were to view sin as less serious than it is, or didn't think of the atonement as in uh, any sense penal, or just couldn't believe that God could cause the unsaved to suffer for eternity, well then yeah, they might adopt some form of annihilationism. Uh, and if someone were to adopt annihilationism for these or other wrong reasons, perhaps they might turn to what Stephen and I would consider worse error, such as uh, universalism. But on the other hand, if someone like me adopts annihilationism for purely exegetical reasons, 
seeing sin as being as serious as it is, seeing death as the punishment Christ bore in place of the elect as our penal substitute, uh, and seeing all of reality as being God-centered and not man-centered, well, then annihilationism isn't going to lead to any worse error. Accepting annihilationism for the wrong reasons could, uh, but I just don't think that accepting it for the right reasons um, can. It won't. Accepting it for the right reasons won't. And I might add that holding on to the traditional view of hell for the wrong reasons could lead to further error as well. What if someone holds on to it simply because it has been the majority view? Well, then they might turn to Roman Catholicism because of its emphasis on the authority of tradition. Or what if someone holds on to the traditional view of hell because they stubbornly insist on a literalistic interpretation of the book of Revelation? Well, well, then they might adopt a dispensational premillennial eschatology, which I'm not saying is as serious as error, uh, as serious error as Roman Catholicism. It's not. Uh, but I do think it's an error, one that one might adopt if they hold on to a literalistic view of Revelation in support of traditional hell. So no, I, I don't think annihilationism leads to worse error, but error can lead someone to adopt annihilationism, or it could lead someone to remain a traditionalist, and either way it's dangerous. Let's make sure that whatever side of this fence we fall on, we're carefully examining the scripture to see what it says is going to happen to the unsaved at the final judgment, and let's not come to conclusions based on emotions or philosophy or tradition. Well, okay, so let's now listen to the second clip that I wanted to comment on. Um, one of the things that convinces me of uh, the, the traditional view of hell is something which um, where the punishment goes on forever is how the Bible uses the imagery take for example the imagery of fire fire doesn't uh, cause things to stop existing fire rather uh, ruins things it turns wood to ashes it turns uh, bodies to bones and uh, dust so there's still something there, almost even recognizable, but ruined. Now, I'm not calling Steve a liar, uh, not by any stretch of the imagination. He, the discussion with Steve was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and he's going to be on my show in the future. But I think that, at best, this comment was worded inaccurately. Sure, if someone who already holds to a traditional view of hell because of some of the common proof texts and thinks of annihilationism as simply ceasing to exist, well, then it's possible that fires reducing things to ashes rather than causing them to disappear out of existence entirely might cause them to remain a traditionalist. But let's be clear and honest. If, if someone brand new to the Bible with no past exposure to Christianity via culture or media or anything like that, completely unfamiliar with the different views of hell, were to see the Bible say that the unsaved will be burned up like chaff in a furnace... And that's just one of many similar texts. Well, then fires reducing things to ashes would in no way convince them of the traditional view of hell. No, that would be absurd. Fires reducing things to ashes would cause such a person to, be, uh, to begin to suspect that the unsaved will be killed and completely destroyed in hell. Uh, which is, of course, my view. So anyway, I just thought that was a little interesting. Uh, and now we'll move into the third clip that I wanted to play. And this is a little, a little bit long, but I wanted the whole, you know, the context and everything here. Well, sure. I think it's actually Revelation that we're that we're moving into. But, but I mean, to answer your question, I, I, I would echo, I think, most uh, of what Steve said. Um, I happen to think that annihilation is an infinite punishment, and, and I think we'll probably get to one passage in, in, in which I'll get an opportunity to explain why. Uh, you know, as for this idea of a jigsaw, um, you know, Steve and I both believe in the penal substitution theory, um, in which we believe, and, and I'm a layperson, so you'll have to correct me if, if my summary of penal substitution is, is correct, but, uh, but my understanding is that what that means is that he took our punishment upon himself in our place. 
Uh, and so when I look at what the scripture says about what Christ did for us, I mean, we sometimes assume the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious punishing, and then we read that back into the cross, saying, as Steve did, that his suffering, finite in time as the God-man, sort of qualifies as the eternal conscious suffering that the elect would have faced. And, and I don't particularly have a problem with that, but outside of the context of this debate, if we were asked what Jesus did so that we won't face the punishment we deserve, we'd probably answer that he died, and by that what we would mean is that he was uh, he died for our sins, was buried and raised the third day, which is of course what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 as, as utmost importance, he says. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that Steve and I both at least try uh, to, to take this holistic sort of jigsaw sure. view of, 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 of the Bible. Um, the question is, what are the implications of, of how these things play out? Sure, Chris, but let me just come back at you on that. Um, you're right, we, we do both share the, the what's sometimes called the penal substitutionary view of Jesus' death. That is to say, one of the things that he achieved, not the only thing, one of the things was to suffer the punishment we deserved. But get this, um, when he was suffering, his soul didn't cease to be conscious at any moment. Um, he said to the guy, the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And now that, he's not with a, a Jesus whose soul is unconscious. When Jesus was preaching to the spirits in prison, as Peter says, 1 Peter 3, uh, that is to say Jesus was declaring his lordship and power and glory to those who'd sinned in the days of Noah, that's what the text says. Um, he wasn't unconscious. So for Jesus' experience in some sense on the cross to match the experience of hell, it doesn't seem to me to to fit with a view that says those in hell become unconscious of mm. the suffering. Well, well, I'm glad that you bring that up. Um, I actually don't think, I'm not convinced that those passages uh, do, in fact, teach that Jesus continued to be conscious, and I think that uh, both some dualist and some physicalist Christians would, would disagree with your interpretation of them. Um, but, but, but let's talk about what happened to Christ on the cross. I mean, I do think it's certainly possible that he could have, his soul could have become uh, unconscious. Remember that I'm not saying that the soul ceases to exist. I'm saying that it dies in the way that the body dies, and if somebody wants to say that that means it, it ceases to exist, they're going to have to demonstrate that. I think it's speculation. But, but I really don't think that a traditionalist wants to insist that the punishment that Jesus bore must have been identical to what the elect would have faced, because they don't believe that the punishment Jesus bore was identical to what the elect would have faced. How do I know this? Because they don't believe that the unsaved are ever going to die a bodily death in hell. I mean, sure, they'll say that they'll die in a sense, but their bodies will never die as Christ's did. Uh, and this gets worse. When traditionalists are challenged to explain why Christ didn't suffer torment for eternity on the cross, what they'll typically do is say that a finite period of suffering uh, on the cross, because he's a God-man, qualifies as eternal punishment. And again, I don't have a problem with that, but consider what it means. It means that the punishment that Christ bore in the place of the elect was his suffering, but that would make the, his, his death unnecessary and arbitrary. After all, the bodies of the elect wouldn't die in hell. The bodies of the unsaved aren't going to die in hell. No, I Why did Jesus' body have to die? No, I, I, I don't think that's fair, Chris. Uh, I think what happens is on the cross, Jesus suffers the experience of punishment from God, which includes what we call death, which is um, that the body ceases to have physical life in it. And it also includes the experience of, um, in his mind or his consciousness or his soul, being uh, tormented, um, being experiencing punishment. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. Now, those two aspects, it seems to me, they do match the experience which the Bible indicates will be felt by the lost. That is to say, their bodies will you cease to be animated. The wicked will die? Uh, sorry, I missed that. I what you said. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So you think that the bodies of the wicked will die in hell? I think the bodies of the... 
well, okay, now what we're getting to is uh, after the resurrection. So, again, yeah. that's right. So the, the, the Bible teaches, and we've, we're agreed on this, that both those who are saved and those who are lost will be raised, and that those who are uh, lost will experience in their souls um, the uh, punishment and pain and uh, sometimes it's called torment. The Bible, Revelation 20 and Revelation 14 call it torment of being confronted by a God whom they've rejected. This is one of the interesting things. We, we Again, we've mentioned this in passing. But what is the experience of punishment in hell? Actually, a number of people uh, throughout the history of the church have observed that the imagery of fire, which is the experience of hell, matches the imagery used for God himself. And this is the horrifying thought that um, as Jonathan Edwards put it, uh, paraphrasing him now, the fire of hell is the presence of God. Um, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Cursed are those who reject Christ, for they will see the God they've rejected. It's, uh, the thought is horrifying. Um, it's not, and this is a popular misunderstanding of hell, it's not that those who are lost are shut out from the presence of God. Some of our Bible translations make a, a bit of a, a glitch in 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, implying that the lost don't experience God at all. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Um, uh, rather, what happens is they're confronted with the God whose existence they've rejected and whose worship they've rejected and whose being they've denied. And that, that is the torment which goes on forever and ever. Yeah, and, you know, and Justin, I mean, if we can move into Revelation in a moment, that, mm. would, that would be helpful for yeah, me sure. to come up twice. But to, but but just to reiterate what I said, I, I think that you answered my question for me, that bodies of the wicked won't die, but Jesus' body did. So, I mean, if we're going to insist that the punishment that he bore was identical to what the elect would have faced, what the unsaved are going to face, I think that traditionalism, traditionalism actually faces a greater problem there. Yeah, in fairness, nobody's saying that the punishment is the same in every respect, are they? I mean... Uh, neither you nor I are saying that the conscious punishment goes on for three days. So obviously we're not drawing an exact parallel between the experience of the lost and the experience of Jesus. Nobody's drawing that. The question is what fits best. Great. Now this went pretty much as I thought that it would. When, when the traditionalist objects to annihilationism on the grounds that Jesus didn't cease to be conscious while dead or cease to exist while dead or anything, which by the way isn't necessarily what the text Steve pointed to indicate, well then all the annihilationist has to do is point out that since traditionalists don't believe the unsaved are going to die a bodily death in hell like Jesus did on the cross, then their objection falls apart entirely. You, you can't object to one view in which you think Christ's experience doesn't match the unsaved, when your view is one in which Christ's experience doesn't match the unsaved, it just gets you nowhere. Now, as for Steve saying that what matters is which one fits best, well, perhaps what he's implying is that his view is one in which the unsaved remain conscious in hell like Christ remained conscious between dying and being resurrected, and which thus fits better than my view in which the unsaved will die in hell like Christ died on the cross. Okay, well, he's certainly welcome to think that his view, if that's what it is, fits better, but there's certainly no argument there. It's just an arbitrary choice to claim continued consciousness rather than bodily death uh, as being the element of Christ's experience which must likewise be experienced by the unsaved in hell. And of course that's all assuming that Christ did in fact remain conscious in death, which is something some of us aren't convinced of in the first place. Even if we're going to assume that, then to figure out which of these two elements of Christ's death is what must likewise be experienced by the unsaved in hell, either his continued consciousness after death or the death of his, of his body, well then we've got to turn to the rest of scriptures to find the answer. The traditionalist simply has no argument to make from the atonement itself. 
Whereas several other texts indicate that Christ died for our sins, which I think strongly suggests that bodily death and not ongoing consciousness is the punishment that he bore on behalf of the elect, and is thus what awaits the non-elect in hell. And you know what dawned on me as I prepared this response is that while Steve thinks Christ remained conscious in death, surely he doesn't think Christ continued to suffer while dead. Even though his statement that neither of us think the unsaved will suffer for three days in hell might suggest that's what he thinks. I I think that was, you know, I think he misspoke. No, remember, he pointed to Jesus' words to the thief on the cross about paradise and to his alleged preaching victory to the spirits in prison as evidence that Jesus remained conscious in death. So Steve mustn't think Christ continued to suffer after he died. After all, he said, it is finished as he died. A view which says he continued to suffer while dead would be to say the atonement continued after he died, and neither of us are part of the word faith movement which would say that. Well, then this means that in Steve's view, no element of Jesus' experience in death matches what awaits the unsaved in hell, except for mere consciousness. That doesn't seem very persuasive to me. Perhaps then the better route for a traditionalist to take would be to argue that it's Christ's conscious suffering on the cross before his death, which is the punishment he took in the place of the elect. After all, then the experience of the unsaved in hell, in their view, assumed to be conscious suffering in a living body, would match Christ's experience on the cross, with the exception of a difference in duration, which would be chalked up to Christ being the God-man. Okay, but as you heard me point out in this clip, this would seem to make Christ's bodily death completely unnecessary and arbitrary. If his suffering, finite in time, on the cross, was the eternal punishment that he bore for the elect, then why did he have to die? And yet the Bible repeatedly indicates that it was his death which was for our our sins. So obviously this wouldn't be a very good route for a traditionalist to take after all. So I'm becoming more and more convinced that the traditional view of hell is actually not very compatible with a penal substitution view of the atonement at all. But annihilationism, which says that just as Christ died for the elect, so too will the non-elect die in hell, seems to fit quite well with penal substitution. At best, the traditionalist just doesn't have an argument from penal substitution. So those were the clips that I wanted to play. If that strikes your interest and you haven't yet listened to the discussion, I would encourage you to go check it out. Um... And at this point, I want to start looking at some of the feedback that was sent in uh, or that was posted somewhere after the episode uh, was published. And I want to begin with a friend and listener, Ronnie, who on his... uh, uh, Oh, yeah, Ronnie, by the way, if you don't recall, is the uh, listener who debated Turretin fan on this topic on my show some some time back. And at his blog at conditionalism.net forward slash blog, um, he posted an announcement of this episode of Unbelievable in which he, he wrote this. As is often the case, the format did not allow for in-depth examination of the salient arguments and texts. That said, it was a decent overview of some of the important issues, and, perhaps more importantly, a model of irenic and charitable exchange over an area of disagreement between two Christians." Now, I agree with Ronnie. It is unfortunate that we couldn't get into all of the texts that we both, no doubt, had wanted to. Um, But Ronnie's right that the format of Unbelievable doesn't typically allow for that. Uh, it was it was a decent overview of some of the issues that might cause some people to reconsider annihilationism. Uh, indeed, as we'll see in a little bit, it did more than that with one listener. But what I'm really thrilled about with this episode was, as Ronnie points out, the tone and tenor of our conversation. Two brothers in Christ can disagree strongly about a topic as serious as this, and yet debate one another graciously and respectfully. And I hope that that's something that some of uh, some of those listening to this might learn from. 
Ronnie goes on, as an interesting aside, Steve Jeffrey disclaims the nomenclature of, quote, everlasting torment, unquote, and instead prefers, quote, eternal conscious punishment, unquote, on the grounds that, quote, torment sounds pointless, unquote, to use his words. This is despite the fact that it's the very language of torment, as found in Revelation 14 and 20, that Steve finds so compelling, unquote. Now, I'll admit that this does strike me as a little odd as well. After all, in, in the debate, Steve made a point of arguing that torment communicates conscious suffering. Mind you, he never responded to my exegetical argument from this imagery. Uh, but if he's going to argue from the word torment, well then it does seem strange that he would distance himself from the word torment in describing his view. But I suppose that that has more to do with the first impression that it might give unbelievers or something like that, so I'm not going to criticize him too harshly for his choice. Uh, the, the next feedback that I wanted to comment on was an email that I received from a uh, friend and fellow podcaster, Phil Nasons. Now, just to be clear, I want to say this from the outset, uh, Phil does not share my view of hell. He's not an annihilationist, and he doesn't find my case compelling. However, he did send me an encouraging email, uh, and so I wanted to read that and, and comment on it. Um, he wrote... Quote, you sounded pretty good on the program. My hope and prayer is that those who disagree with your view on how God punishes the wicked don't hammer you publicly and label you a heretic. Hell hath no fury like a theological view tested, unquote. Uh, now, so far, this kind of thing hasn't happened. One well-known apologist whom I deeply respect and whose work I highly appreciate seems like maybe he no longer wants to respond to my emails. Uh, and so perhaps he now considers me a heretic, but he hasn't hammered me publicly, and it could just be that he's very busy. Or there's Matt Slick, who, whom I called just before my debate with Hiram Diaz. And in that call, Matt did express serious concern for me, and he uses the word heresy a little bit more liberally than I do. But for the most part, he was kind and cordial. So as of yet, I haven't received this kind of public burning at the stake. <laughs> uh, but then again, I'm pretty much nobody anyway. Uh, Phil goes on in his email, quote, Continue testing, my friend. Continue thinking for yourself. Continue pushing the boundaries. Continue allowing the scripture to be your guide and let the chips fall where they may. Continue being a man who refuses to allow the opinions of others to dictate what you believe. And know what you believe and not what others tell you to. Unquote. Well, thanks for this encouragement, Phil. I really appreciate it. And I would encourage those of you listening to take Phil's advice, too. We definitely need to consider tradition. We, we, after all, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we're certainly not called to work through these issues in isolation from the rest of the body of Christ. But that said... Scripture is the final authority, and where it's clear, and where it's clearly in opposition to a certain tradition, then we need to stand up for Scripture and refuse to be battered into believing something Scripture just doesn't teach. Uh, so anyway, thanks again, Phil, for your encouragement. The next bit of feedback uh, was posted by a listener named Robert on the uh, The Apologetics Facebook page, uh, and I'm going to read and comment on, on his comment. He wrote, quote, I was looking forward to this. Unfortunately, I do not feel like much of anything was said. To me, it was like most of the issues were talked around and not talked about. For instance, the discussion of Revelation and Matthew 25:46, which I think only you mentioned, had almost no discussion at all. I wish y'all had set out uh, certain scriptures that you would try to discuss and get into other details as you went along. Dang. Unquote. Well, Robert, to a certain extent, I share your feelings. I did send Justin and Steve a list of uh, scriptures that I wanted to discuss, which included Matthew 25:46. but Steve had other talking points that he wanted to discuss, and Justin chose from each of our lists as the recording went on. By the time we were halfway through or so, I was really beginning to worry that Mark 9:48 was the only passage that I had wanted to discuss that we would in fact get to, but I was relieved when we at least got to discuss Revelation. Uh, but I feel your pain, Robert, and, and as Ronnie pointed out in the previous feedback that I read, Unbelievable just isn't the best format uh, for the kind of depth that you and I both would have preferred. 
You go on in this comment, quote, I know you were convinced in your mind with regard to Revelation 19 and 20 and Matthew 25, 46, but to people that don't think much about afterlife but are Christian and those that take the traditionalist approach, it doesn't seem to carry much weight. Here's what I mean. You say punishment is annihilation and then forever, but if something is annihilated, no one thinks it is coming back. It's annihilated. So to say punishment, annihilation, is everlasting and therefore fits in perfectly with Matthew 25:46 just doesn't sound strong at all, unquote. Well, Robert, as I quoted toward the end of the discussion, the late great traditionalist Jonathan Edwards had no problem admitting that my view fits the language of eternal punishment quite well. I had planned also to quote John Blanchard, who was the author of Whatever Happened to Hell, and Raymond Robert in Contending for the Faith, both traditionalists who admit that my view does present an eternal punishment. Now, perhaps the reason they understood that my view is an eternal punishment, and maybe you haven't yet been able to understand that, is because you're mischaracterizing it in the very way you state it. The, the punishment in our view is to have one's life taken away forever. That's it. The punishment is to be rendered utterly lifeless in every imaginable way, never to live again. Very obviously, then, the punishment I'm arguing for is eternal. Consider the, the earthly legal death sentence for a moment. What is the punishment of being hung or being executed or being shot to death or lethal injection? In none of these cases is the, is the punishment that which is experienced while dying. No, in each case, the punishment is the death that results from being killed. That's all we annihilationists are saying about final punishment, that it is the everlasting result of being killed. It's really quite simple, and that's why I think Jonathan Edwards, John Blanchard, Raymond Robert, and other traditionalists all admit that annihilation is an eternal punishment. Now you go on, quote, And with Revelation chapters 19 and 20, there really are human being, uh, humans and other beings thrown into a real place that is everlasting and forever. It doesn't matter if the imagery is beast equals one person or many people, prophet equals one person or many, etc. What seems to matter is that the Bible is telling us that there is a real something being thrown into another real something alive, and this is forever and ever, unquote. Now, I actually don't think I argued on unbelievable from the beast and false prophet being institutions, although I could do that. No, what I argued was that A, the language of Revelation is imagery, which no Christian can reasonably deny, traditionalist or otherwise, and that B, the imagery of torment in the book of Revelation itself symbolizes destruction, torment forever symbolizing everlasting destruction. Regarding the first of those two points, I don't even feel the need to defend that statement. John just is not seeing the future. He's seeing vivid imagery depicting the future by means of symbolism. This just is not deniable. Now, regarding the second point, I explained that in the two places where torment is mentioned in Revelation, John hearkens to Isaiah 34.10, where smoke rises forever from the destruction of Edom, and when the harlot is tormented, it symbolizes the destruction of the city she represents. And I explained that death and Hades, abstract entities unable to experience torment at all, are also thrown into the same lake of fire as the devil, beast, and false prophet. We know that death comes to an end, and we know that the intermediate state, that's what Hades is, comes to an end, after all, it's called intermediate, so combined with what the imagery of torment is intended to communicate, we know that when things in the vision are thrown into the lake of fire, in real life, things are destroyed. So you see, the problem with traditionalists, uh, uh, traditionalism's argument from Revelation is that it fails to take into account that it is vivid imagery symbolizing something in reality. It fails to take into account what the imagery of torment obviously symbolizes. And it fails to take into account that the abstract entities which we know come to an end, death and Hades, are thrown into the fire as well. 
it just reads the text of this imagery on at the on the very surface level and assumes that it must be taken literalistically. No, annihilationism, I think, makes far better sense of the imagery of Revelation. Uh, you go on, quote, Again, I know you were convinced in your mind, as most people are about their positions, duh. But what I have read and heard from you and others on these verses need a lot more work, unquote. Now, I appreciate that, uh, Robert. Honestly, I do. But I think it's traditionalists whose work on these verses needs a lot more work. Because with virtually no exception, their argument from these verses relies on nothing but the surface-most reading of these texts, isolated from the more immediate context, as well as the broader context of all of Scripture. I'm sorry, but I'm just not willing to hang my theological hat on such a myopic and shallow view of these texts. You end your comment with, quote, I offer these not as debate, but constructive criticisms from someone steadfast with an opposing view, but truly seeking only truth from God and not man-made thinking, unquote. Now, I appreciate that, Robert, and, and I don't take it any other way. Uh, I've gotten the impression that you're trying to be nothing but respectful and helpful in your criticisms. And what's more, I've gotten the impression that you're honestly thinking through these texts and trying to understand them from my perspective, even if you don't agree. So I appreciate your effort, even if the end we don't agree on this topic. Now, the next bit of feedback, if you want to call it that, uh, comes, from a, comes from a nice lady named Naomi, uh, who blogs at talkingchristian.blogspot.com. Uh, I happened to get an email from Twitter when my name was included in a tweet that this person made in response to the unbelievable radio program after it was published. Uh, so what I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read most of her uh, blog post and then read some of the comments that I and somebody else left in response to her blog post. She writes, Before you read on, I feel I must refer you to my tagline above. I'm not theologically trained, I just have opinions I'm happy to offer. So this post really isn't going to be based on exegesis, it's simply going to come from the heart of the way I feel about eternity. Uh, and then she quotes Matthew 25:46 from the ESV, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, unquote. She says, surely hell has to be an eternal conscious punishment. I can't say in what form the punishment will take. I understand the reference of hell as Gehenna to be uh, the sacrificial fire, so I don't know if it's a big burning place in eternity or not. But essentially, whatever it is, I believe it will be for eternity and it won't be pretty. Why would it be so imperative as Christians to be evangelical with the message of God's love? Why would God desperately want no one to experience hell and for all of us to come to him and accept his son died in our places so we could avoid it? Because it is eternal. There is no way getting away from it. I do not believe in the tactic of hellfire versus heaven, uh, but it's got to be more urgent to flee hellfire than to flee annihilation. And then she quotes Matthew 10.28 from the ESV, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. She writes, I'm not a Christian because I'm frightened of hell, but I certainly don't want to go there. But annihilation holds no fear for me. Some people would say I know nothing anyway, so to be clueless for eternity isn't going to make much difference. Sure, we may be missing out on heaven, and maybe that, uh, and maybe that is deemed to be the real punishment. But really, will that bother anyone if they are unaware of it? I've missed hundreds of fantastic parties I knew nothing about. Actually, I can't really say I missed them because I didn't know anything about them. Ergo, it doesn't bother me. I just get on with my life, or not, in the case of the annihilation theory. Whatever your thoughts uh, that hell may or may not be, I think as believing Christians, we all know that most importantly we have an eternal place in heaven and that it is open to everyone. Uh, unquote. Now, in response to that, here, here was my first comment. I wrote, Hi, Naomi. First, thanks so much for listening to my friendly debate with Steve Jeffrey on Unbelievable. Thanks, too, for sharing your thoughts. If you don't mind, I'd like to offer mine in return. Regarding Matthew 25:46, I think this text favors my view over Steve's. A mere verses earlier, Jesus says the unsaved will go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That phrase, eternal fire, is used in only two other places, and in both places it refers to a fire which burns down to nothing but lifeless remains. 
Jude 7, for example, says Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a specimen, uh, the word translated example, of what awaits the wicked having been punished by eternal fire. Also, in Revelation, the imagery of eternal torment in a lake of fire communicates being brought to an end since death and Hades are thrown into it. Thus, the intermediate state comes to an end. And since when the harlot is tormented, the interpreting angel tells John that it symbolizes the destruction of the city she represents, hearkening to Isaiah 34.10, where smoke rises forever from the remains of Edom. So I think we have every reason to believe that the eternal punishment to which Jesus refers is the punishment of being destroyed forever. And toward the end of the discussion, I quoted the famous traditionalist Jonathan Edwards, who admitted that my view makes good sense of eternal punishment. Now, is there a greater sense of urgency in avoiding eternal torment than avoiding being violently and painfully killed a final time? Well, I don't know. That seems like speculation to me. I think that what, whether eternal punishment is eternal torment or eternal destruction, either way, the worst thing about it is not getting to experience bliss in the presence of God for eternity. And so it seems to me that the urgency is equal in both our views. I just can't relate to your statement that the idea of not getting to spend eternity with God is something that causes you no fear. And besides, nobody wants to be violently and painfully killed. So again, I guess I just can't relate to your sentiment. That said, what's most important is that we believe what the Bible says rather than base our views on what we think will or will not scare unbelievable, uh, unbelie unbelievers. Regarding Matthew 10.28, the word destroy here, wherever it's used transitively in the synoptic gospels of destroying somebody, it always means to slay or to kill, to render lifeless. And Jesus is saying that we shouldn't fear people who can uh, kill only the body, rendering it a corpse. We should instead fear the one who will render both body and soul a corpse, so to speak. And he hearkens to Gehenna, which in the Old Testament was a place called Topheth, where idol worshippers destroyed children by fire, in which God turned into a place of slaughter where scavenging beasts and birds would not be frightened away from fully consuming lifeless, rotting corpses. Hell, then, is a place where the whole person, and not just the body, will be reduced to nothing but utterly lifeless remains. So again, I really appreciate your thoughts, and I hope my response doesn't come across as harsh or mean. I honestly don't intend them to. I just think the scripture is clear, and I think the violent and painful killing that it says awaits the unsaved in hell, and not getting to spend eternity in the presence of God, is very much cause for fear. Thanks, Chris. Now, in response to that, she wrote, Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time to read my simple thoughts and comment. I'm in no way as scholared as you or Steve. You make a very persuasive point, and even as I was writing it, I looked up verses I was thinking you may be right. What worried me about that was, if you were right, would my other beliefs slip away? Life is hard as a Christian, and like I said, I'm not on it. I'm not in it because of the fear of eternal hell, but it helps. I cannot wait to be with God for eternity in heaven. I'm never going to get to travel to all the exotic places of this world, but I know I will experience a world far more beautiful than I can imagine. If the alternative to that was permanent destruction, it would be horrific, but it would be over. Whereas I could not imagine how awful an eternity of pain and punishment would, uh, would be, and I would fear that. I am honored that you would read my post and you did not come across as harsh, uh, uh, as harsh at all. Which, by the way, I'm thankful for. And then I responded to her with this. Hi, Naomi. My thoughts are no less simple than yours, trust me. As I explained on the radio, I'm just a lay person like you and likewise have no theological training. It's my pleasure and honor to get to discuss this or any other topic with anybody who's interested in discussing them. And I'm very glad I didn't come across as harsh. I appreciated the kind, respectful nature of my discussion with Steve, and I hope to continue to have discussions like that one. Were you to accept annihilation, would you have to give up other Christian beliefs you currently hold? No, not at all. I can tell you that Steve and I believe the same things in a host of other doctrines. And in those places where we disagree, it has nothing to do whatsoever with our current doctrines of hell. 
There is a danger, however, in accepting annihilationism for the wrong reasons, and when some annihilationists slide into more serious error, I think it's because their reasons for accepting annihilationism were wrong. For example, if one accepts annihilationism because of an emotional aversion to the idea of eternal torment or an objection to eternal torment on philosophical grounds, or because they don't think sin is as serious as it is, well, they might spend a brief period of time as an annihilationist, but may very well slip into this, the more serious error of universalism. After all, if one has a problem with eternal torment as punishment for sin, one very well may have a problem with being violently and painfully destroyed, too. Other illegitimate reasons for accepting annihilationism could probably be identified, too, which might lead someone to serious error. I asked C via email for some examples since he said something about it in the debate, and he mentioned tinkering with the doctrine of penal substitution, thinking that the suffering of the lost would mar the joy of the redeemed, and other, other problems, but admitted that I don't make those errors. On the other hand, what if one, like I think I have, accepts annihilationism on purely exegetical grounds, firmly committed to the inerrancy of God's word? What if one, like I think I have, recognizes that an infinite eternal punishment is required because of the seriousness of sin and thinks annihilation is, uh, qualifies since the unsaved who are destroyed in hell will never ever live again? What if one, like I think I have, recognizes that the atonement was a penal substitution in which Christ bore the punishment we deserve in our place and thinks that since Christ died for our sins, the punishment of hell is death, too? What if one, like I think I have, recognizes that the punishment of the unsaved is a demonstration of God's goodness and mercy to the, to the saved, but sees in Isaiah 66 the saved praising God because of the utter destruction of the unsaved rather than their torment? I guess the point I'm getting at is I think the Bible teaches annihilationism, but I didn't become convinced of that for any of the wrong reasons. And I believe annihilationism is true because uh, for many of the same reasons Steve believes his view is true. Penal substitution, seriousness of sin, demonstration of God's goodness and mercy to the saved, and of course the text of scripture itself. And if one accepts annihilationism for the right reasons, I don't think there's any reason to fear that one is going to give up other important beliefs taught by God's holy inerrant word. After that, uh, a listener named Jonathan, a listener and friend named Jonathan, wrote, uh, Hi, Naomi. I like the blog. I just wanted to put in my two cents and piggyback on Chris's outstanding remarks regarding the giving up of important beliefs. As Chris stated already, if one adopts annihilationist perspective for the right reasons, there is no fear of apostasy, as it were. The only right reason for adopting any view is that, it, uh, that is that it, of course, squares up with the only reliable plumb line that we have, that being holy writ. In my mind, the real problem with all of this stems from the Reformation stopping just short of Reformation in an important area of Christian thought, eschatology. Now that certainly permeates areas other than just the final fate of the wicked, but the overall arc of last things. I have in no way given up any other central foundational Christian belief. If anything, I have tackled, uh, if anything, I have tackled my faith with a bit more gusto. I may still be tweaking my understanding of the intermediate state, but assuredly any fine-tuning is done with scripture firmly in hand. There's no, there's really no tension to think that annihilationism Sorry, I, there is really no reason to think that annihilationism will corrupt one's orthodoxy in other areas. Some will vehemently disagree with that, but their reasons for doing so would uh, would make for a post on its own. And then the last comment was Naomi responding to uh, Jonathan and me. She wrote, Thanks for your comment, comments, guys. Yes, I certainly hope I wouldn't change my views because of my feelings, but because of what I had understood from the scripture. Lots of room to study and grow here, I think. Now that's some of the feedback... Uh, if you want to call all of it that, uh, that, that was posted between the airing of that, of the episode in which I appeared and two episodes later where Justin read some of the feedback that he received. I'm not going to read all the emails that, that he, uh, I'm not going to comment on all the emails he received, but I am going to comment on the ones that, uh, have some relevance to the debate between traditionalism and annihilationism. Here's the first, uh, here's the first such feedback that he read. 
Let's turn to some of your feedback to uh, the last few weeks of programming and, and not long here. And so I'm just going to read a few quick uh, responses to that program we had where Chris Date was on. Uh, he was defending an annihilationist view of hell, the view that uh, the soul is pretty much destroyed, as it were, uh, when they, the unbeliever goes to hell. Uh, Steve Jeffrey was arguing for the eternal conscious punishment view. Uh, this one from uh, Christopher in Eastern Europe says a very interesting debate, one dimension of the sheer awfulness of hell that I haven't heard expressed is the burning realisation of those who in their life refused the salvation offered in Christ that they're now excluded from God and from enjoying his glory forevermore that by their bad choice in life they have blown it for eternity can there be anything more intensely painful imaginable um, and you wonder if the uh, Biblical images of unquenchable fire, the worm that will not die, the smoke of torment, are seeking to convey to us this terrible reality of hell. Now, if all we do is read the texts in which these phrases appear and not anything else in the Bible, then, then a question like this, you know, I wonder if the biblical images of unquenchable fire, the worm that will not die, the smoke of torment, are seeking to convey to us this terrible reality of hell. A question like this makes sense. Unquenchable fire, undying worms, and smoke of torment could convey any number of things. But if we do read our Bibles beyond just these specific texts, well then this question doesn't really make any sense because the Bible tells us what these phrases mean. To quench does not mean to go out in either the English or the original biblical languages. It means to put out or extinguish. Take Jeremiah 17:27 for example, which says, "I will kindle a fire in its gates and I will devour the places of Jerusalem and not and it will not be quenched." That word devour means to consume, and when consume describes what fire does, it means to burn down to nothing. That's why Exodus 3.2 says the burning bush was burning with fire and yet was not consumed, because it kept burning without ever being reduced to ashes. Unquenchable fire, which does consume, then, is not mysterious. It's simply a fire which will not be prevented from fully consuming that which it burns up. When it comes to a worm which won't die... In light of the parallel, which is a fire that no one can extinguish before it fully consumes, it seems pretty clear that that's all that's intended by undying worms, or worms which won't die before fully consuming dead bodies. Consider the similar language of Jeremiah 7. There it says that what was in Jesus' day called Gehenna, that is, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, would be turned into a place of slaughter and corpses. And listen to verse 33. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Obviously, this wasn't intended to communicate that a wicked person will be tormented forever by being unceasingly nibbled on by scavengers. <laughs> no, if a fire which won't be quenched means a fire which will not be put out prematurely and prevented from fully consuming dead bodies, and if beasts and birds which won't be scared away communicate scavengers which will not be prevented from fully consuming dead bodies, well, then it seems obvious that worms which won't die means worms which will not be prevented from fully consuming dead bodies. As for the smoke of torment, what does this symbolism mean? Well, in chapter 17, the harlot mystery Babylon is a symbol of a city, as explicitly stated by the angel in verse 18. And in chapter 18, verse 7, this symbol, the harlot, is tormented to a degree equal with her self-glorification. She's seen as tormented again in verse 10 and again in verse 15, but look at what verse 21 says with respect to the city she represents. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. So the personal symbol suffers torment, but the city she represents is destroyed. And look at what the great multitude in heaven says in chapter 19, verse 3. Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The same language here in Revelation 14. So smoke of a symbol's torment rising forever communicates the final destruction of that which the symbol represents. 
And John isn't coming up with this language himself. The language from Isaiah 34, 8 to 10 describes the destruction of Edom. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. And then the nature of the destruction is evident from verse 3's reference to the slain whose corpses give off their stench. So John's imagery of the smoke rising forever and ever from the torment of a symbol and the vision is symbolism communicating that what the symbol represents will be destroyed forever. Just as Edom and the city represented by Mystery Babylon were destroyed forever. You see, when we read more than just the traditional proof text in myopic isolation, this imagery and these phrases really aren't that hard to understand at all. Now let's move on to the next bit of feedback that Justin read. Pastor Dan Sinclair says, um, I greatly appreciated this program. Chris Date did an admirable and convincing job of defending his position from the scriptures. I also, it's also worth noting that one of the great evangelical Bible expositors and one of my favorites, John Stott, favored or was open to the annihilation position. The idea that the fires of hell were merely the presence of God tormenting the unregenerate was a new and interesting idea to me. Annihilation does seem a, a little less draconian and a little more fair than eternal punishment. However, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that the unregenerate are forever cursing God for their punishment and thereby driving themselves into further and eternal punishment. I really appreciated Dan's kind words about me and if you're listening Dan thanks so much. Two things that I want to respond to though. First, you inadvertently, I think, created a false dichotomy between annihilationism and eternal punishment. I tried to make it clear in the episode that I do believe in eternal punishment, and I even quoted Jonathan Edwards, who admitted that my view fits the eternity language quite well. So I just wanted to clear that up. The debate is not between eternal punishment and annihilation. It's between eternal punishment in the form of eternal conscious suffering or in the form of annihilation. Second is a C.S. Lewis reference about sinners continuing to sin in hell. Being reformed, I don't disagree with that. But the assumption that some make is that therefore that requires added ongoing suffering. But once one accepts a biblical teaching that the punishment awaiting the unsaved is death, then obviously annihilation can account for sins committed as part of the process that kills the unsaved, since the resultant death is a death from which they will never ever rise. It is an eternal punishment that accounts for sins committed both before and after the judgment. Imagine, if you will, a criminal sentenced to death. As he's led to the electric chair, he briefly frees himself and injures a couple of police officers, at which point he's restrained again. Now, I'm not aware of how the legal system accounts for a possibility like this, but I really strongly suspect that they would not postpone the execution to go try him on two accounts of assault and battery and then add a fine or jail sentence to be paid prior to his rescheduled execution. No, I think that after being restrained, he would be tied up to that chair and executed, as was always the plan. The punishment of death would already account for crimes committed while being led to execution. And I think that the same is true with annihilation as eternal punishment. One more bit of feedback that Justin read uh, that I want to comment on. Um, here's uh, Kevin in uh, Portland, Oregon. Great show on Helen and Annihilation. I've always considered myself fairly convinced of the eternal punishment position. And having recently read Francis Chan's book, Erasing Hell, I was affirmed in this belief. However, Chris Date made some excellent arguments. I found myself converted, as it were, to the annihilationist view. This change has always made slightly more philosophical sense to me, but only after listening to your show does it now make exegetical sense. Thanks for a great show and two well-made arguments. Now, I'll be honest, I did not expect to actually change anybody's mind on the show. I was just hoping to open some people's minds, but I'm thrilled that I did, in fact, convince somebody. Uh, that's really cool. One thing that I do want to say, though, 
I get the impression that Kevin has studied this debate for a while, even before this unbelievable episode, and, and that it was just my exegesis of the common traditional proof texts that sort of tipped the scales for him. But for those of you who haven't studied the topic in depth, particularly those of you who uh, haven't listened to the numerous episode, episodes that I've done on the topic, I certainly don't encourage you to change your mind after hearing just one good argument for either side of the debate. If one of my episodes causes you to wonder if perhaps your belief in the traditional view of hell is wrong, well then great. Uh, go and do some further research with a newfound appreciation for the strength of my position, but don't change your mind overnight. Not yet. Take it slow and steady. Now there were two other bits of feedback that I wanted to comment on which uh, Justin sent Steve and I, uh, Steve and me, uh, but which he didn't read on air. The first is from somebody named Ian, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit of what he wrote. He said, uh, a very interesting discussion on hell yesterday, though sometimes we seem to miss the point. So we should remember the purpose of Christ's teaching on hell, and this is uh, that the consequences of not going God's way are utterly horrific. We need to recognize that we cannot possibly know the exact nature of hell, nor of heaven for that matter, for everything will be radically transformed after Christ's return. However, the best way of appreciating the nature of hell from our current standpoint is to imagine being burnt forever in fire. Now, to a certain extent, I certainly agree that we cannot know the exact nature of hell, but that doesn't mean we can't ap apprehend what God has revealed about it in the pages of Scripture. I know that's not Ian's point. Uh, his point is, assuming the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious punishing, we can't know some of the details. But I think we can know that hell most definitely is not eternal conscious punishing. And we can know it because God has told us. And as for his claim that the best way of appreciating the nature of hell is to imagine being burnt forever in fire, well, why? The only place where the Bible describes hell as anything remotely like that is in Revelation, which is highly symbolic apocalyptic imagery, imagery, imagery depicting the abstract entities death and Hades being thrown into the symbolic lake of fire as well, thus imagery communicating final destruction, not eternal torment. Everywhere else, the Bible describes hell as a place where things don't burn forever, they are burnt up once and for all. Now, interestingly, Ian, uh, Ian also has a blog in which he recently wrote a post called The Death He Came to Die. In the post, he writes, Jesus took upon himself the judgment that should have been ours, resulting ultimately in the Father rejecting him because of our sin. Unquote. You see, if Christ took upon himself the punishment deserved by the elect, then what will the non-elect face in hell? Death, quite obviously. Which is, of course, what the Bible says is the punishment awaiting the unsaved in hell. Someone like Ian, who, like Steve and I, believes in the penal substitution theory of the atonement, which I suspect is the case with many of you as well, uh, such a one should be the first to accept annihilationism, uh, as I try to argue in the discussion with Steve. Now, there's one last bit of feedback that Justin received, again, which he didn't read on the air, uh, but I wish he had because it was the only substantive challenge to my view that was sent into him, at least that he shared with Steve and me. So I'm going to read that feedback, uh, and then I'm going to read a longer blog post that he wrote, uh, and then I'm going to read to you the response that I sent him. He, he has graciously uh, agreed to have a dialogue over email. Um, I don't know what's going to come of it yet, uh, but he was friendly about it. So I sent him a response, and uh, I'll read that to you. But before I do, here, here's the email that he sent into Justin, or at least part of it. He wrote to Justin saying, I found it interesting that Chris Date limited the Lord's comments in Mark 9, verses 43 to 49, exclusively to the context of Isaiah 66, 24, because it seems clear to me that the Lord is giving the words a wider and more serious significance. But even if we take Chris's view that Mark 9 refers exclusively to the body, Christ's words show that fire doesn't consume. Uh, indeed, verse 49 teaches the fire actually preserves it. So if the body continues to exist, we can conclude from Matthew 10.28 that the soul continues to exist too, destroy soul and body in hell. And this shows destroy doesn't mean annihilate, uh, as a survey of the Greek word and its occurrences in the New Testament will show. And I think it stretches credulity to think of the soul eternally existing but not being conscious. 
Chris's view also gives no room for degrees of punishment, which the Bible certainly teaches. God's judgment of the unbeliever will be according to works, and the unbeliever is now treasuring up wrath, which will result in them suffering what the Bible calls affliction and distress, Romans 2, 5-9. More could be said, especially on the substitutionary work of Christ, which I felt was very poorly understood by Chris, but that will do for now. Now, that, that person, who uh, Paul, who wrote into... Um, Justin Brierley, after the episode, wrote a blog post where he expands on that argument, I think, a little bit, and so I'm going to read that now. Um, I just want to address an argument I have recently heard in the 3rd March episode of Unbelievable, advanced in support of annihilationism, uh, the view that unbeliever will not consciously suffer eternally for their sins. The person I heard on this subject was saying that the passages ad advanced in favor of eternal conscious punishment teach no such thing. He said that Mark 9, verses 43 to 49 is merely an allusion to Isaiah 66, verse 24, in which it is not conscious persons but dead bodies that are in view. However, this is to miss the point of what the Lord is saying. He is certainly alluding to that passage, but he's giving it a more serious and wide-ranging application. That passage in Isaiah relates to the end of the kingdom, while the Lord is speaking to people who won't enter the kingdom. But more importantly, if it is the Lord who explicitly teaches that the fire he is talking about is not merely for the body, but is for soul and body, Matthew 10:28, and they shall never be put out of existence. There are many things that could be said to show that the Lord is not limiting his meaning to the meaning in Isaiah 66, but I don't need to go into all that to show that the passage doesn't do the annihilationist any favors. Even if we take the annihilationist view of Mark 9, verses 43 to 49, and say that the Lord is referring to the body, the teaching would then be that the body does not cease to exist. But that being the case, we turn to Matthew 10, 28, and discover that soul and body are destroyed. Note the change in words, not killed, in hell. Now, the annihilationist cannot say that that means they cease to exist, because Mark 9 has proved the body is preserved in the fire, not consumed by it. But Matthew 10.28 tells us that the soul and body had the same fate, and therefore the soul must continue to exist, and it is just nonsense to speak about an unconscious soul, because the soul is the consciousness. If the soul continues to exist, then the person continues to exist consciously. Destruction doesn't ever mean to put out of existence. It means utter hopeless ruin and waste. In fact, the word is used to describe the state of the unbeliever now in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, and is used to describe the state of the, that the believer was in prior to conversion in Luke 19, verse 10. Needless to say, to transport the idea of non-existence into these passages or any others makes nonsense out of them. The word describes a loss of all well-being and the utter misery of those who do not avail of the salvation Christ has provided. The good news is that those who are lost and perishing now can be saved, but the bad news is that those who are lost and perishing in hell can never be saved. I will address other aspects of this and most serious subject again in future posts, Lord willing." Unquote. So, so that was the only substantive challenge to my view sent into Justin. Uh, and. I'm going to read you my response, uh, and you know, if, if uh, Paul gives me permission, then I'll go ahead and I'll read future correspondence between him and me. Uh, if he posts public blog posts, then I'll go ahead and read those and comment on them as well, as time permits. Uh, but in the meantime, here is my somewhat lengthy response to Paul, so bear with me. I think it's educational and informational, uh, and this will be what I end on. Uh, so let me go ahead and read this. Paul, I think you misunderstood a few things I was saying, so let me begin by clearing those up before responding to your co uh, arguments. First, I never limited Mark 9.48 to the context of Isaiah 66.24. All I said is that Jesus is simply quoting Isaiah 66.24, which refers to lifeless, stinking, rotting corpses. If Isaiah 66 and Mark 9 are prophetically speaking of two different events, that's fine. Perhaps, for example, Isaiah 66 speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and perhaps Mark 9 refers to the future, final judgment. But that doesn't change the fact that the language Jesus quotes describes dead bodies. And so therefore, one cannot simply quote Mark 9.48 as evidence that the bodies of the unsaved will never die, which is in fact what theologians have historically done. 
Second, I never said Mark 948 refers exclusively to the body. I happen to think that the lifelessness of bodies it describes will extend also to souls which are destroyed in hell. But all I said is that the language it quotes describes dead bodies, not living bodies. Traditionalist theologians have consistently said that the bodies of the unsaved will not die in hell, pointing to this very passage, and yet this very passage's language describes dead bodies, not living ones. That was the point I was making. Third, I never said that the body or soul continues to exist forever. All I said is that it's speculation to say that when a soul dies, it immediately ceases to exist. When a body dies, it doesn't necessarily cease being a body immediately. It might be destroyed immediately, or it might rot for a while. The same might be true of souls in some sense, we just don't know. And the point I was making was that if Christ's human soul died in this way when his body died, that doesn't mean his human nature ceased to exist or something, breaking the hypostatic union, uh, which is a charge sometimes leveled at us annihilationists. Now with those misapprehensions cleared up, let me respond to your argument proper. I don't disagree that Jesus gives the language he quotes a, quote, wider and more serious significance, unquote. As I indicated a moment ago, it's possible that perhaps Isaiah 66:24 describes a different event than Jesus does in Mark 9:48, but that doesn't mean that the language Jesus quotes automatically takes on a meaning which is exactly the opposite of what originally meant, which is, as I pointed out, exactly what theologians have historically done with this passage. No, a very compelling argument has got to be made that Jesus is so radically reversing the original meaning of those words. Simply quoting Mark 9:48 doesn't do the job, and yet that's exactly what traditionalists often do. Now, in the email to Justin, you claim that verse 49 of Mark teaches the fire actually preserves the body, which may be the basis for the claim you made in the blog post that the teaching then would be that the body does not cease to exist. This is an interesting argument, but I don't find it compelling for at least three reasons. First, verse 49 does not say that salt will be applied to the people thrown in hell. No, at best it says those people will be salted with fire. Salt sometimes preserves, but that doesn't mean that being salted by fire preserves. Second, verse 49 does not say that everything is salt, uh, that is salted will be preserved by the salt, and salt has more than one application. In Ezekiel 43, for example, salt is thrown on animals which are subsequently offered up as a burnt sacrifice. That salt did not preserve the life of those animals' bodies at all. Third, Mark 9.49 is not a verse upon which theologians are united in understanding. It's not at all certain what it means, and so even apart from the aforementioned two reasons, it doesn't serve as a challenge to my view. Mark 9.48, by quoting Isaiah 66.24, tells us that the body will die, and I think this is what will happen to the soul as well. Whether they will, be uh, whether they will immediately cease to exist or not is not answered by this passage. In the email to Justin, you say that based on Mark 9.49, Christ's words show that fire doesn't consume the body. We've already seen that that isn't the case, but I like when the word consume comes up in this discussion. Whenever consume is connected with fire, it means to burn something down to nothing but remains, to utterly burn up. That's why the burning bush was explicitly said to not be consumed. It's interesting, then, that the Bible says God is a fire which will consume his enemies, while traditionalists have historically said the unsaved will not be consumed. But the real reason I wanted to respond to this doesn't consume claim is because in Matthew 13, Jesus seems to indicate pretty clearly that the unsaved will, in fact, be consumed. In verse 24 to 30, he gives a parable of wheat and tares in which the tares are burned up with fire. The word there, katakayo, which is rendered burn up or consume, doesn't simply mean to burn, but literally means something like burn down. It refers to reducing something to nothing but remains by means of a fire. And then in verse 40, interpreting the parable, Jesus says that this is just what will happen to the unsaved, saying in verse 42 that they will be thrown into a furnace of fire, hearkening to Malachi 4's furnace which burns the wicked to ashes underneath the feet of the righteous. So in fact, we have very good reason to think that the unsaved will be consumed by fire in hell. 
In the email and in the blog post, you turn next to Matthew 10:28, which I'm quite happy to do. You argue that since Mark 9:49 says the body continues to exist, so too must Matthew 10:28 indicate that the soul will continue to exist. Well, we've already seen that Mark 9:49 indicates nothing of the sort, so this argument doesn't really appear to get off on the right foot. And as for the claim that the soul is the consciousness, this is not how traditional dualists typically think of the Bible's use of soul, it seems to me. They would say that the soul is an immaterial part of man, an immaterial true essence of man, the real you that lives on after death, which is more than one's consciousness, but is where one's consciousness resides. If this is the biblical teaching, then this immaterial part of man could certainly be rendered lifeless the way that a body is, and we just wouldn't know one way or the other if it immediately ceases to exist. You go on to argue that the change from kill in the first clause to destroy in the second, and that the use of destroy elsewhere, means that both body and soul will be laid utterly waste, or something to that effect, in hell. But this just isn't the case. The reality is that apollomy, rendered destroy, is often a synonym for kill. In fact, with, from what I can tell, no demonstrable exception, everywhere it's used transitively in the synoptic gospels, it means something like slay or kill. See Matthew 2.13, Matthew 12.14, Matthew 21.41, Matthew 22.7, Matthew 27.20, Mark 3.6, Mark 9.22, Mark 11.18, Mark 12.9, Luke 17.27, Luke 17.29, Luke 19.47, and Luke 20.16. Regardless of the fact that when it's intransitive, it sometimes but not always means lost or ruined, its use as a transitive verb in the Synoptic Gospels demonstrates that in Matthew 10.28, Jesus says God will kill the body and soul in hell. And the change from kill in the first clause to destroy in the second doesn't indicate otherwise. But it's not simply Apollomy that demonstrates that this is the meaning of Matthew 10.28. It's also Jesus' allusion to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. It was once a place where idol worshippers burnt up children as sacrifices to their gods. But Jeremiah 7.32 says Gehenna would become the Valley of Slaughter. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Isaiah 30 says it would be a funeral pyre, which is basically a pile of wood for burning up corpses. So Gehenna once was a place where idol idol worshippers burnt up children in fire, but the Lord turned it into a place of slaughter. And after he destroyed his enemies by fire the way they once destroyed their children, it would be a place of piles of rotting corpses being eaten up by animals, symbolized by a funeral pyre which burns corpses up. This, combined with the way Apollomy is used transitively in the Synoptic Gospels, strongly suggests that the Annihilationist case from Matthew 10.28 is correct. Now, traditionalists often speak of the idea of degrees of punishment as if it's the Achilles' heel of annihilationism, but it's not. For one thing, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about degrees of punishment in hell, and what it does say doesn't tell us anything about how those degrees are expressed. In parables, evil servants are given lashes, some many and some few, but these are parabolic and wouldn't make much sense taken literally to support traditionalism anyway, since lashes for eternity could hardly be categorized as many versus few. In several places, Jesus says it will be worse for some on the day of judgment than for others, but doesn't say anything specific about that, uh, specific beyond that. So the truth every Christian has to face, traditionalist or or not, is that we don't know much about how degrees of punishment are meted out in hell. Second, my view does, in fact, give room for degrees of punishment. As Edward Fudge explains, our view allows for an infinite number of possible combinations of type, intensity, and duration of suffering as part of the destructive process. That the death that ensues is the punishment all men equally deserve for sins committed against an infinitely holy God, but degrees of suffering experienced as part of the destructive process could account for degrees of punishment between people who've sinned to different degrees. Or, as some annihilationists contend, perhaps degrees of punishment aren't expressed through degrees of suffering at all, but are instead expressed through different degrees of shame and guilt at judgment, or degrees of shameful legacies left behind after their death. 
And then, of course, there's a strange seeming contradiction traditionalists seem to make by arguing from degrees of punishment, where on one hand they argue that a sin committed against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite punishment, but then on the other hand say that some people deserve more punishment than others. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense anyway. Again, the Bible doesn't say much about how degrees of punishment are meted out in hell, and it says that anybody who's broken even one command has broken the entirety of the law, and that no one is good, not one, and that all have fallen short of the glory of God. To whatever extent the Bible does teach degrees of punishment in hell, annihilationism certainly gives room for it. And then in your email, you said that I appear to have misunderstood the substitutionary work of Christ, but you didn't explain that yet, so I can't really defend my view from it. But I will point out that not only did Steve not disagree with my stated definition of penal substitution, but he admitted, as I was attempting to force him to do, that no one, traditionalist or otherwise, thinks that what he suffered was identical to what the elect would have suffered and, and what the unsaved will suffer. Having literally written the book on penal substitution, I suspect Steve understands Christ's substitutionary work, and if there was more to challenge me from it, I'm sure he would have done it. But as our exchange continues, perhaps you'll show me otherwise. I believe that addresses everything in the email and the blog post, and I'm looking forward to your response. Well, that's all the feedback that I've got to respond to so far. I'll comment on future feedback in future episodes, perhaps. In the meantime, I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast for a debate on Sola Scriptura. Until then, 